0: With a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George, welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM.
1: It's the Thursday edition, and this week we have a double shot of FrontBurner from CBC News, including last Friday's edition where they talked about the pullout of of, uh, troops from the Afghan war by the United States. But to start today's program, it is uh, Tuesday morning's edition of FrontBurner from CBC News.
2: Hi, I'm Jamie Poisson. As COVID-19 vaccines became available in Canada, so many of us rushed out to roll up our sleeves. More than 25 million of us have gotten at least one shot, about 78% of the eligible population. But now some health experts are starting to wonder about that remaining 22-ish percent. Why haven't they got their first dose yet? It's a critical question as more transmissible variants continue to emerge. Today, I'm joined by two doctors to tackle it. Dr. Nahid Dasani is back. He's the health equity lead at Kensington Health in Toronto and the medical director of the COVID-19 Isolation Housing Program in the region of Peel. And Dr. Jahu, he's a public health physician in Calgary and one of the founders of 9to0, a coalition of experts working to build confidence in vaccines. Dr. Who, Dr. Desani, hello to you both. Thank you so much for being here.
3: Hello. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us on.
2: It's so great to have you both. And I know uh, you guys actually both went to residency together in in Toronto. So you actually know each other very well.
3: So true. It's great to be together with you, Jeff. (laughs) Likewise. Yeah, on the airwaves.
2: (laughs) So, Dr. Who, maybe we'll start with you. Um, When you look at the vaccination rate here in Canada, so about 78% of eligible people with at least one dose now. Uh, that That's a pretty positive statistic, right? The U.S. is, is only around 67%. Yeah,
4: no, it's, it's it's really quite high. I think we're either first or second in the world right now for, you know, first dose uptake. And I um, never would have dreamed to be this high. So you don't know, it's, it, it is a very good number. Um, I mean, it'd be nice to be higher, but but we are much better than the U.S., much better than many other countries. Very true.
2: Uh, and, and I'm hoping today we can talk about, you know, how we might get higher and why that's important. Uh, Dr. Desani. I wonder if, if you're starting, though, to feel concerned about that figure maybe starting to, to slow a bit.
3: Yeah, you know, I think we have a lot we need to celebrate about getting to that number. But we have to start to come to the realization that the effort we put in to get to that number, we might have to work double or triply as hard to get that last mile, that last, you know, 25 percent going um, to get people really vaccinated. We you know recognize that there are some people who either are not legible for vaccines or have an allergy or a health condition. And then there's maybe, you know, this group that is this smaller group, but a group of you know, potentially anti-vaxxers who will, who will never really change their position on this topic. But there's a whole proportion of people who have not been vaccinated due to structural issues and in the ability to get access around, you know, transportation, paid time off work, childcare, language issues, technology issues. And we really need to, you know, dig deep to really meet these people where they're at to support them so that we can really bring the number of people who need to be vaccinated to bring that number up to where it needs to be.
2: I know this might sound like kind of an obvious question, but but why is it important that that percentage keeps going up? And, and like ideally, to where?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the the issue here is absolutely a lot of the things we've been talking about throughout the pandemic, including the concept of herd immunity. But in the era of variants, we have to recognize that if people do not get vaccinated, they can become variant factories. They can produce new variants that are more transmissible, that are more dangerous, and potentially more resistant to vaccines. So when we talk about vaccination, we're not just saying to people, listen, this is about your health. This is about also taking the responsibility of vaccination on so we can improve the health of our entire community. That's why vaccination is so important at this point, and even more important than ever.
4: Yeah, of course. I mean, I I, I think that with the variants... The higher the rate we get, is better. Like the better we are, right? We begin to see right now in Europe and Israel a sort of resurgence in the number of cases. In Israel, coronavirus cases have surged by fifty percent in the last week.
0: The Delta variant has driven infections to levels not seen in Israel since April, mainly among unvaccinated people.
4: We actually are opening the time where we actually had a higher vaccine uptake rate than nearly anywhere in the world which is good um we mostly have the population immunized with these mRNA vaccines which are quite protective against even the delta variant which is good but you know i I think that if we really really want to put this to bed which i think would be great for everybody getting even higher than you know 75 80 you know if we get to 90 that'd be really good and a bit of a dream but that 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 would be sort of a a nice target to, to reach
2: I guess let's get into some of the hurdles to reaching a target like that. And, and Dr. Nisani also ta- uh, already talked about accessibility issues. And I, I wonder, Dr. Nisani if you could just tell me a little bit more, maybe you can elaborate on what you were talking about earlier and, and tell me about who you see still facing those kind of barriers around just simply accessing the vaccine.
3: Yeah. You know, I I, I think, a lot about what we've done. And we've done a great job coast to coast. Kudos to colleagues who have really developed interventions and models that have been, you know, pop-up clinics and, you know, mass clinics and arenas. And we've done a great job at that. I think to really push this last mile, we're going to really have to think about how we can really get to where people are, even in a more fine-tuned way. And that might mean going door to door, you know, house to house, apartment building to apartment building, neighborhood to um, neighborhood. You know, why is it a wild thought that we're, that we're not, Doing that, and we actually have some jurisdictions in Canada that are starting to do that and use data to target particular kinds of buildings and spaces and places. We also have to start to think about the kinds of populations that are often excluded by healthcare or who lack trust in healthcare. People who are non-status in our communities, migrant workers, people who experience homelessness, people who use drugs. You know, we really need to recognize the experience of what's like for, for these uh, folks who don't have that trust in healthcare, may not be willing to give their name or demographic information. And, and that might be the actual reason they haven't been vaccinated. And then finally, there are still lots and lots of people who are working and just don't have the resources or ability or haven't had the ability to get vaccinated for paid time off for vaccination or vaccination side effects, for example. People who are working in multiple roles um, or you know, can't get childcare or transportation, for example. I think these are some of the structural factors we really need to think through.
2: Dr. Who do you see those structural factors uh, in Alberta as well, um, which I should note has one of the lowest vaccination rates in the country?
4: Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, I, I think you sort of see these structural factors across the country. They sort of exist to different degrees, different populations. But, you know, I think in Ontario, you know, Nahid mentioned sort of these undocumented, temporary migrant workers, and lots of these, I think, with pretty big outbreaks at our meat plants in the same way. Um, I think in Alberta what we see a lot of is uh, – People like Dr. Dasani has done a pretty good job, I think, of actually increasing uptake amongst what I call urban vulnerables. In Alberta, if you look at where people aren't getting vaccinated, it really does seem to be the rural areas. And so if I go outside of Edmonton, Calgary, maybe Red Deer, I I was just chatting with the Tabor Town Council where you know their vaccine uptake rate across all ages is about 36%. And I think that access structural stuff. You know, how worried people are about COVID in general and what you might think of as traditional hesitancy or what I would say is like a lack of trust in the vaccine is often linked to a lack
3: of trust in government, public health, etc. cetera. Yeah. I, I really appreciate Dr. Who talking about trust because I think there's another piece to this that, you know, we really relied up until this point on our public health units and, and, and government and, and various institutions putting out messaging around COVID-19 and then people just consuming that mass messaging. And it worked. It got us to where we are. In the last mile, this last 25 percent that may not be as effective. So I'm really excited here in Ontario because, you know, rolling out this week and next week, family doctors are going to have access to reports to really know whether their patients have been vaccinated, whether they've gotten one or both or none. And that will allow them to be thrust into this position where they can have this one on one counseling opportunity, providing that tailored education, that custom discussion that people really need. And there's a lot of people out there like that. I also think about the role of Social media and social media influencers in Canada to help build that trust back in institutions and back in you know in, into the COVID nineteen vaccine strategy. You know I I was pleased to hear in Ontario government officials talking about it last week. I don't know if, like there's actually resources being put to this because it's definitely an art, but it's but it's a science. We need to be on Instagram. We need to be on TikTok. We need to be using you know trusted sources of information, you know, accounts that people trust from various demographics and walks of life um, to build connections for people. I, I think those are two important things to consider around trust.
2: You know, this is something that we've talked a lot on the show about, this this issue of trust around vaccine hesitancy and, and you know, where do you guys think it it comes from?
4: Yeah, no, of course. I mean, like when it comes to building trust, right? Like, I, I, I mean, maybe I'll, I'll use some of the meat plants as an example, right? There's very, very large outbreaks about 14 months ago. And I think that, you know, why do people lack trust in the vaccines? I think like some groups have been, you know, traditionally, uh, marginalized or hurt by governments. And so they don't trust them. <laughs> Some of the, you know, on, on the rural side, I think they just general lower trust in government, but I think to sort of build trust, you know, and this started happening well before vaccine was available. Um, You know, we would support people essentially with whatever needs they had. And sometimes that was, you know, income support, something that was food support and, you know, working through people and in groups that work with the communities already and have relationships are very helpful. Um, and, and and so I think that really the, the key is to uh, when it comes to the trustees, you know, one, I think working with people who have trusted relationships and and, and and two, meeting people where they are with whatever needs they have at the time as opposed to sort of imposing some sort of view upon them.
2: I, I'm trying to think about what that could look like in, in like rural Alberta, and I, you know, I bring this up in in part because you know recently we spoke with a doctor in southern Manitoba, um, who's treating a number of unvaccinated patients with COVID, Uh, and and you know he talked to us about how some of them just didn't even believe that COVID existed.
1: I've had patients who, even on their deathbeds, have denied that they have COVID. They uh, they don't want to hear it. I've had patients who have left our emergency room. Very angry at being given that diagnosis, patients who refuse to be tested because they don't believe that this is real
2: and so what what could that look like in in, in that part of the country, sort of more rural areas? Yeah. And, you know,
4: I, I I think I'm learning more about the sort of rural areas uh, myself as we sort of kick off some of the rural projects. But, you know, when we've chatted with sort of some of our sort of community leaders, you know, I think the different sort of churches and other faith communities that exist tend to be influential. You have things like 4-H clubs and Rotary clubs, you know, organizations in Alberta, like you know, companies like Nutrien or UFA, I think some of the big employers but, I, you know, no matter sort of where you are, there does tend to be, you know, organizations that, you know, are part of the community that sort of have to trust of the community. One thing I did sort of want to index on is that, you know, I, I think that there is a very small number of people that really don't think COVID is real. Um, you know, this is like sort of like that microchip 5G crowd. But I think as with, you know, the sort of urban vulnerable population, if I sort of spin back the clock and we've been sort of tracking sentiment for more than a year, you know, there's quite a lot of hesitancy, but I think through sort of that trust building and sort of collective work that many people have done, it's pretty high. And I like I, I think that we can sort of do better than the, than we are in the rural areas. Um, but very few people are what I would say like truly conspiratorially anti-vaxxer.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, I do wonder if, if like another piece of this, and, and I would open this question up to to either of you. Um, like, like, do you think that some people are also just thinking that, that this is kind of under control now? So, so, why would they bother to get vaccinated?
3: For sure. there's uh, There are people out there who are feeling, well, everyone else is vaccinated, so I don't need to get vaccinated, or are seeing case counts and death counts come down. And that is uh, unfortunate, because, um, you know, really, we're only going to get through this together through herd immunity. And then the discussion, you know, really has to has change. And, and it has, you know, a lot of us are now talking about the idea of unvaccinated people becoming reservoirs or these more dangerous variants. So I think it requires a pivot in how we're educating people which goes back to like the messaging and how we you know we we message things through media and social media but i also want to just touch on the fact that there is a tendency when people aren't getting vaccinated and, and we've all seen seen it online to just really just bash people attack them call them all sorts of names. And I can understand from one perspective where that comes from, but I don't know that that's really improving vaccine uptake when we attack it and tell people. I think we have to remember that this pandemic has been hard on people from all walks of life. People have lost their jobs. Businesses have been impacted. People's livelihood and purposes have been impacted. There's been a lot of emotional pain through this. I think we need to respond with empathy and compassion. And, And as hard as that might be, for people, I think that's the way to get there.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And certainly that is backed up by all, all sorts of research around this.
1: That is Tuesday morning's edition of Burner from CBC News. Part one, we will have part two in a moment here on After Nine.
0: Hello, I'm Carlos Núñez, the Galician Piper,
5: ¡Núñez! Hey, this is Tim Brennan with the Dropkick Murphys. Hey, this is Dave King from Flag and Molly. Sean Smith from Lunaset. Karen Casey here. This is Ian Byrne from The Elders. Join me,
6: Patricia Fraser, for the best Celtic music mix. Kelton in a Twist,
0: Canada's
1: contemporary Celtic radio hour. Kelton in a Twist with your host, Patricia Fraser, Tuesday nights at 8 following Fiddle Fest with AJ here on 93.1 CFIS
5: FM. Next time you're out on the ocean, help save whales by reporting any sightings using the Whale Report app. By making submissions, you're contributing to the OceanWise BC Sighting Network, a database of more than 130,000 whale sightings spanning more than 50 years. This provides researchers with critical information about the health of whales, dolphins, porpoises, and sea turtles in the BC waters. For more information, or to download the Whale Report app, visit the OceanWise website at ocean.org.
1: United Way of Northern BC's next fundraising barbecue of the season is this week. Stop by KMS Tools and Equipment at First and Queensway between 9.30 and 4 today, tomorrow, or Saturday to get a Smokey and a Pop by donation. Funds raised help United Way support local social service programming. It's Smokey to the Rescue in support of local not-for-profit agencies from the United Way of Northern BC, 9.30 to 4 today, tomorrow, and Saturday at KMS Tools
0: and Equipment, First and Queensway. Forecast for Environment Canada, cloudy with local smoke becoming a mix of sun and cloud this morning with wind from the southwest at 20, a high of 24 with a high UV index. Tonight, cloudy with local smoke and a 40% chance of showers before morning, a low of 13. For Friday, cloudy with local smoke and a 60% chance of showers or thunderstorms, a high of 20. It's after 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM.
1: And here is part two of Tuesday morning's front burner from CBC News.
0: Besides, besides what we've talked
2: about in terms of increasing access and building trust and, and employing empathy, are, are there any, like, carrots and or sticks that you think may end up being useful in, in terms of getting those on, on the fence vaccinated, maybe? So, like, I know, for example, Doctor Who, uh, Alberto is offering lottery money, which sounds kind of fun. And it's announced three prizes of $1 million a piece. And these are going to be handed out over the next
0: few months. After all, we've had to spend billions of dollars in our health care system and through supporting people through the past 16 tough months.
4: So- yeah, I mean, I I think that I like I'm a fan of whatever, right? Like, and if lotteries work for some people, I know a lot of organizations have given out incentives like money or gift cards. I think another sort of type of incentive or disincentive not to be vaccinated that, that's occurring is what I call sort of proofs of vaccination. Um, one of the one of my jobs is the Calgary Stampede medical director, and basically have a sort of proof vaccination or negative testing program. But certainly for international travel, I think to go to a lot of countries in the in the not too distant future, if you want to avoid a fortnight quarantine, you will need to be immunized. Those things they don't work for everybody, but they if they work for some people. It's fine by me. Uh, we really just need to like do whatever it takes, and for different folks, it'll be different things.
3: Yeah, yeah i so i really do recognize the importance of using every carrot we can to get people vaccinated lotteries are certainly interesting but even just presenting you know passports or proof of vaccination to go to restaurants for example or concerts or for travel this this is a this is a huge potential carrot for people that will encourage them to get vaccinated but we cannot forget that this may be more challenging for structurally vulnerable groups like for example people who experience homelessness or don't have access to technology that in the bid to kind of use every carrot we've further ostracized already marginalized groups and so we must be cognizant of that and create safeguards for people who you know deal with deficiencies in the social determinants of health in our communities as well i do worry about that too
2: Uh before we go today uh i wonder if if either of you would would want to make a final pitch here either to someone who might not be vaccinated yet or someone who's worried about someone in their lives who's not vaccinated yet and doctor who maybe' we'll, we'll start with you
4: yeah um, to Daveve's point like I, yelling at people or telling people that they're wrong or um, is like totally pointless and, and bad but you know we've come a long way since a year and a half ago when this started. We have more experience with the efficacy and the safety of these vaccines than we did. Um, you know, half a year ago. And, I, you know, I know that many people who haven't been vaccinated have legitimate concerns and legitimate questions, but I would just say that we know that it is highly effective, highly safe. It's the only way I think we can really continue life uh, in a normal way in the future. And if you have any sort of additional questions, I think, you know, contacting somebody like your family doctor, if you have one, would be really helpful. Uh, but let's uh, try not to relive 2020 ever again, uh, and then, <laughs> please get vaccinated.
2: That's a very good pitch to me. I do not, I do not want to relive 2020 again. Uh, Doctor Desani, final word to you.
3: Yeah, I really love that. That you said it really well. What I'll say is, care about your neighbor, care about those who are vulnerable in your communities, care about. Um, you know, those who have been hardest hit by this virus and will continue to be. And, and if you care, you will wear a mask, you will get vaccinated. Don't be a variant factory. Um, if you need to talk to someone, reach out to your primary care provider to have that one-on-one conversation. Please get vaccinated. Uh, we'll only get through this if we are, are doing this together. Uh, our collective intent uh, through empathy and compassion and care for each other is the way out of this pandemic.
2: Okay. Uh, guys, thank you for this. I know you both have a ton going on, so thank you for taking the time. Thanks for having us.
3: Thanks so much.
2: Nice chatting again, to You too, Monday.
3: Chad.
6: <laughs> Got
2: Okay, that is all for today. I'm Jamie Poisson. Thanks so much for listening to Front Burner. And to play us out, a vaccine outreach anthem from Juvenile, who released this version of his nineteen ninety-nine hit last week. But before you find the day you gotta wait chain.
0: Gotta go back to nature Get it straight <laughs> ahead. Girl, you look skill, want your vax that thing. Your musa handsome young brother, want your vax that thing up. They in real life, you need to vax that thing. You're feeling freak all night, you need to vax that thing up. Girl, you look skill, want your fax that thing, your musa handsome young brother, want your vax that thing up. They in real life, you need to vax that thing, you're feeling freak all night, you need to fax that thing up. You can't stand it, no holding hands, chick. But when we get the shot, we gonna be romancing. Girl, you
5: could be the queen. After quarantine, we could meet up at the spot and we could do the thing. Internet dates,
1: i mate. You're listening to 93.1 CFISFM, That is Tuesday morning's front burner from CBC News. You can also catch front burner on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. When After Nine returns, we will have Friday morning's front burner from CBC News as they discuss the pull-up pull-out of uh, u.s. troops from afghanistan
5: the Youth and Grandparents Film Program. Families are invited to tell their stories on video as part of a new production project. Up to 40 young people from the area will be chosen to participate in a program to produce one short film each featuring their grandparents either virtually or in person. Films will be featured in a virtual gala submitted to the Real Youth Film Festival and distributed on YouTube. It's the Youth and Grandparents Film Project. To get involved, contact project leader Courtney Trudeau by email to dot. Trudeau at hotmail dot
1: Extreme heat is especially dangerous for infants and young children. Tune in regularly to local weather forecasts so you know when to take extra care, stay alert for symptoms of heat illness, keep your child hydrated with plenty of cool liquids to drink before they feel thirsty, keep your home as cool as possible, and plan outdoor activities during cooler parts of the day. More information on how to keep your children safe during extreme heat is available at the Health Canada website through canada.ca.
5: Employers are now able to apply online to the BC Government's COVID-19 Paid Sick Leave Reimbursement Program. Through this program, employers can reimburse for up to three days of wages paid to workers for COVID-19-related sick leave. To apply, you must be signed up to the WorkSafeBC online services and not have an existing Paid Sick Leave Program. Full details are available at WorkSafeBC.com. More information about the program is available on the BC Government COVID-19 Paid Sick Leave Reimbursement Program webpage.
4: My name is Nevaeh. I lost my foot in a lawnmower accident. Now I teach other children how to play safe. Kids shouldn't play near lawnmowers. Lawnmowers are very loud. The driver wouldn't be able to hear you if you were playing anywhere near. It's very important
6: to be cautious. Whatever game you play, play safe. A message from the War Amps. Learn more at waramps.ca.
0: Featuring the people who make things happen and Prince George, you're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM.
1: And now last Friday morning's front burner from CBC News.
2: Hi, I'm Jamie Poisson. After 20 bloody years, the U.S. is leaving its longest war. Within a month of the 9-11 attacks in 2001, the U.S., with support from Canada and other NATO allies, invaded Afghanistan. first
1: strike against terrorism as a missile barrage lands on Afghanistan.
0: We will not falter. And we will not fail. Peace and freedom will prevail.
2: Taliban- the goal was to wipe out al-Qaeda and overthrow the Taliban regime, accused of hiding them. More than 2,000 U.S. troops and 158 Canadian members of the military were killed during the mission. But it has been, of course, Afghans that have borne the brunt of the war's casualties. Over 60,000 Afghan security forces are estimated to have been killed. And according to the United Nations, over 100,000 civilians have been killed or injured just since it started, rigorously recording civilian casualties in 2009. Late last week, American troops handed over the control of their main military base in Afghanistan to the Afghan army. And while the plan has been to fully withdraw by September 11th of this year, U.S. President Joe Biden said yesterday that they'll be out even sooner. This exit, it comes as part of an agreement signed by the U.S. and the Taliban in early 2020. The attempts at forging actual peace between the Afghan government and the Taliban since then remain fragile, and violence still rocks the country. Today, the legacy of the 20-year war and what it means for Afghanistan's future. Graham Smith is here with me. He's covered Canada's role in the war from Kandahar for many years as a journalist, and, and more recently, he acted as a consultant on the peace process. He's the best-selling author of The Dogs Are Eating Them Now, Our War in Afghanistan. And Graham was recently back in the country working on an upcoming documentary for TVO called Boasts of Afghanistan. Hey, Graham, thanks so much for making the time today.
6: Thanks for getting in touch.
2: Uh, so I, I was hoping we could start with the American military's exit from the Bagram airfield, a key base in the country last week. And so U.S. forces left in the dead of the night without notifying the Afghan military first. Uh, the new Afghan commander of the base only found out that Americans had left several hours after their 3 a.m. departure.
0: After uh, so we received some rumor that uh, the uh, not, uh, Americans left the Bagram, uh, we uh, increased our intelligence report. And finally, uh, by seven uh, by seven o'clock morning, uh, we understood uh, that we, it was confirmed that they are, uh, already left the background.
2: What did you think when you heard that this was how the U.S. was making its exit?
6: The Pentagon has now denied uh, that they just turned off the lights in the middle of the night and snuck away without telling their Afghan partners. Um, They claim they did a a walk through the base uh, with Afghan counterparts before they left. But the the point is that in Bagram and generally across Afghanistan, uh, the Americans have been leaving very quickly with a real emphasis on keeping their own forces safe and doing everything as smoothly as possible for the Americans uh, and not necessarily for their Afghan allies. Uh, and you know it's it's been it's been tough and it's been very abrupt for uh, Afghan government forces.
2: I saw one senior Afghan official tell The Guardian that that many saw this move as emblematic of how the U.S. is handling their departure. I'll quote I'll quote him here. People are saying the Americans didn't ask the Afghans about coming here, and they didn't consult the Afghans about leaving.
6: That's correct. Yeah, and I think the. The way the Biden administration has chosen to leave, uh, setting a sort of a symbolic exit date of September the 11th, 20 years after the start of the war, um, it shows the Americans intend to carve their own path both in and out of South Asia. Um, uh, There had been hopes that the American exit could be bundled, could be uh, a part of a package deal. Uh, that would include, uh, peace in Afghanistan. And, you know, there have been, and there still are ongoing diplomatic efforts to end the war. Um, but this piece of it, the, the American troops leaving, uh, Biden decided to go his own way.
2: hmm. I'd like to get into those ongoing diplomatic efforts a little bit later in the conversation, but, but first, you know, right now, there are reports of growing violence in Afghanistan and the Taliban has been gaining ground. And more than a thousand Afghan soldiers recently fled into neighboring Tajikistan to save their own lives after clashing with Taliban militants. And what does that tell you about about the current stability or I guess lack of stability in the country as, as U.S. troops withdraw?
6: Yeah. Um, palace officials have said that those uh, troops that fled across the Amodaria River into Tajikistan are going to come back and they will keep fighting the Taliban. Uh, but yeah, it's clear that in some of these far-flung outposts, the Afghan government is having a hard time holding the line. Um, this morning, the Taliban was boasting Uh, of having captured 162 of Afghanistan's 400-some districts uh, in recent weeks. I checked that with a Western official in Kabul in the last hour who said, well, it's probably more like 160. Um, But still, it's an impressive number. Uh, The Taliban really are advancing very quickly.
2: The Taliban is pressing on with its territorial campaign, making significant gains. The armed group now controls almost a third of the country's 400 districts, mainly in the north. It
3: took over Not only me, but all Afghans are worried that the Taliban will take over Afghanistan as U.S. troops leave the country. From the day the issue of the withdrawal of foreign troops arose, it has had a negative impact on the daily work of people.
6: Afghan security forces are currently
0: in control of what used to be until a few days ago, the biggest U.S. Military base
6: in the country. The Americans vacated the premises, and now there are fears the Afghan military will collapse once foreign troops complete their withdrawal
0: by
2: September.
6: The vast majority have already
2: left. I, I know that you were actually in the U.S. Uh, shortly after 9/11. You went to cover the plane that crashed into the field in, in Pennsylvania, and 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 what what dark signs of what was to come did you encounter on that trip?
6: Yeah, I was standing in the Globe and Mail newsroom when the planes hit the towers and pretty soon the news editors sent me down to cover the fourth crash site in Pennsylvania. And as I was driving down, um, across the, uh, open American countryside towards the crash site, I stopped to, uh, refuel my car and, and the guy who was pumping gas for me, uh, uh, was standing under the clear blue sky because there were absolutely no, no planes in the sky. And he looked at me and said, yep, we going to kill some rats. And I was, I was shocked. and I, I, but he, he turned out to be right. You know, there was a kind of visceral American need for retaliation at that time in, after 9-11. And unfortunately um That's how it played out in Afghanistan. A lot of people were killed. Uh, Nobody really knows the number, but the best estimates are somewhere in the order of 200,000 Afghans have lost their lives so far. And the war isn't over, even though we're leaving.
2: When you look back... To when this war started. Did you think that this is where things would stand 20 years later, with the U.S. formally pulling out, with the Taliban gaining ground, with with this violence on the rise?
6: You know, when I wrote my book about Afghanistan, uh, it was published in Canada in 2013, but I guess I wrote the first drafts in 2009. The first four words of the book are, we lost the war. I mean, it was clear to pretty much everybody on the ground that the, you know, campaign to establish a Western style democracy at gunpoint just wasn't working. Um, and so, you know, there've been people like me who spent many, many years trying to argue that we need to have a negotiated solution. There needs to be a settlement with the Taliban that brings the Taliban into the governing structure in Kabul, uh, a peaceful way, you know, that, that we could do this through diplomacy. Um, and those efforts are not over. Um, but, you know, clearly what is over, uh, is this idea of, uh, forcing Afghanistan to accept the kind of governance that we, the West, uh, wanted for it. Do you
2: think there have been any successes?
6: Yeah, of course. I mean, today there are more than twice as many Afghans living in Afghanistan as there were under the Taliban regime in the 1990s. Uh, you know, it was a population of only 16 million or so, and now it's uh, 38 million. Of those, you know, 38 million, uh, there are millions of boys and girls in school uh, who, you know, weren't being educated under the Taliban. Um, there is more electricity. Uh, today I was talking to a friend in Kabul and he said there's still blackouts Uh, As electricity pylons get blown up north of the city. Um, But, anyways, um, you know, there's more electricity than there was before. Uh, There's more telecommunications. You can get uh, pretty reasonable 3G uh, internet access. Uh, I can FaceTime my friends in Kabul. Uh, So things really have changed. It's just. You know, we're leaving behind the bloodiest war on the planet Earth. More people are killed annually in Afghanistan than in all the Middle Eastern wars combined. It's more than Syria, it's more than Yemen, it's more than Iraq. It's more than all of those other wars put together. And so we are really walking away from a bloody inferno. In Nangarhar province, peace is particularly elusive. There are many Taliban and ISIL fighters. They fight each other and they fight the government. From April to June, 160 civilians were killed in Nagaha and nearly 500 wounded. Most of those casualties were no accident.
2: I know you lived in Afghanistan. You have lots of Afghan friends, colleagues, contacts. And I wonder if you could give me a sense of, of the magnitude of the impact this war has, has had on, on some of them.
6: I mean, just like everybody else who spent years in Afghanistan, um, I've had friends killed and kidnapped. And um, actually, just uh, this week, I was trying to help a friend whose guard had a cute little boy who was kidnapped, probably a, a commercial kidnapping. There's a lot of people desperate for money these days in Afghanistan. Wow. Um, I, you know, it's it's really, it's hurt everybody. Um, and nobody has escaped unscathed. I've been Bombed and shot at and rocketed and moored and RPG'd, and a convoy I was in was hit by a suicide bomber, and I was chased to the streets. And honestly, I feel lucky. I feel like I got off really easy um, compared to a lot of my friends um, who've, who've really, you know, they've suffered, they've lost people uh, who are close to them. Um, uh,
0: my name is uh, Junior, and I was uh, working uh, for the Canadian forces at uh, Kandahar PRT for about seven years where uh, I lost my both legs below the knee in an operation in uh, Panjwai district.
6: And what do you by operation is not a medical operation, but uh, a military operation? It was a, uh,
0: actually, it was a combat mission. We were fighting with uh, the insurgents while they shot an RPG at the vehicle that I was in and then uh, unfortunately hit my legs. Fortunately, didn't hit my head.
2: Is, is there a story or two, or two that really stands out to you?
6: I mean, honestly, every day is a new story. Um, An hour ago, I was on the phone with a friend in Kabul who was um, trying to find a way out of Afghanistan. And I I get those calls a lot. Um, People are really desperate to leave. Um, I mean, not everybody. Uh, When I'm in Doha and I'm talking to the Taliban, some of them are desperate to get back. Uh, Some of them haven't seen Afghanistan uh, in years because they were chased away by the arrival of international forces. And they still dream, uh, literally dream. You know, they, they tell me that in their dreams they see their country and they want to go home. Um, but especially in in urban Afghanistan, the sort of English-speaking professionals that, that I've gotten to know over the last, well, gosh, it's been a long time now, more than 15 years. Those people... A lot of them want to leave.
4: We are very worried about a possible return of the Taliban, so we want to leave the country
6: before the situation gets worse.
4: Most districts have fallen. There's not a single district without fighting. They've even reached the chief of police's office and provincial capitals. I've come here to get my passport and get out of Afghanistan. It's not safe here.
1: That is the first segment of last Friday's Front Burner from CBC News here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. When After 9 continues part two in a moment.
6: The College New Caledonia has launched the roadmap for its future with the release of its 2021-2026 to strategic plan, Learning Together. It was achieved through a year of engagement, including hundreds of contributions, dozens of meetings, and open forums across the region. At the core of its plan, CNC's new vision, Learning Together, Changing Lives, Creating Futures. The full plan is available online at cnc.bc.ca. Okay. Hey.
1: The Seniors Resource Center is looking for front desk volunteers. If you're friendly and outgoing with excellent communication skills, the Seniors Resource Center could use you for three or four-hour shifts each week starting in August. It's a fun and relaxed office where you'll get a chance to help clients find the resources and information they need. To help out or for more details, contact the Seniors Resource Center at 250-564-5888 or email info.pgcos at gmail.com.
3: If you attended a federal Indian Day School, now is your time to make your claim. If you experience harm at your school, you may be eligible to receive a check for compensation. Remember, you need to make your claim before July thirteenth, 2022. See if your school is on the list and get free legal help. Start at IndianDaySchools.com or call 1-844-539-3815. Claim
0: what's yours forecast for environment canada cloudy with local smoke becoming a mix of sun and cloud this morning with wind from the southwest at 20 a high of 24 with a high uv index tonight cloudy with local smoke and a 40 percent chance of showers before morning a low of 13 for friday cloudy with local smoke and a 60 percent chance of showers or thunderstorms a high of 20 thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to after nine on 93.1 cfis fm and
1: here is part two of last Friday morning's front burner from CBC News
0: I
2: really today we're talking in terms of, of the u.s. leaving Afghanistan but, but but one thing I did want to ask you is you hear Biden talk about how he's ending these this forever
5: war today we have service members serving in the same war zone as their parented we have service members in Afghanistan who are not yet born on 9/11 and after 20 years of value valor and sacrifice. It's time to bring those troops home.
2: But I guess one thing I, I do wonder about it is like to what degree is that really the case? Like is the US really leaving this war? What's going to happen now?
6: I mean, I wish I knew. Um, I'm professionally, you know, an analyst of Afghanistan. And being an analyst was terribly easy for so many years because people would ask you, what's going to happen next? And you say, well, probably there's going to be 15 to 20 percent more violence next year. Uh, Probably the Taliban will have a few more districts. And that sort of slow grinding uh, incrementally rising warfare was really easy to to, to sort of chart. To you know, mapping the trajectory of it was really simple, um, depressingly simple. Um, and now, um, with the onset of the peace process and the American departure, the scenarios are wide open. I mean, I, I get paid to write scenarios, and and the the breadth of the scenarios is kind of mind boggling. I mean, there's a whole range of things that could happen next. Um, I think in the short term, over the summer, you're likely to continue to see some pretty brutal fighting. Um, The departure of the Americans has reset the battlefield in some ways, and the Taliban are testing to see how far they can push. They have taken a fair bit of territory, even just in the last several weeks. I think it's going to get harder for the Taliban to take more significant territory, um, but you will see probably pretty significant battles ahead Uh, After the Taliban are sure that the Americans are fully departed in September, October, I would expect to see, um, uh, you know, some real uh, violence on the battlefield. I'm afraid we haven't seen anything yet. Um, Hasn't been a major fight over a major city, for example, and that's something that we will see.
2: Do you think it's possible that the Taliban could take take back the country?
6: Um, you know, it's funny. Um, I've been sort of just reading the New York Times or, or reading the, the the media coverage. You, you get this impression that the Taliban are going to militarily take over the entire country. I, mm-hmm. you, you know, that's, that's in the list of scenarios. But I have to say it's probably not in the top ten. I... I, I You know, Western analysts like myself have a really poor track record of predicting the future in Afghanistan. So take whatever I say with a grain of salt. But, you know, the enemies of the Taliban um, in the last two decades of our presence in Afghanistan have become heavily armed billionaires. You know, these are uh, people who got wealthy from military contracts, from drug smuggling. They have tens of thousands of armed men. Um, even leaving aside the the very well trained Afghan special forces, you know there's just a lot of people who don't like the Taliban who have a lot of guns, and so I I have a hard to, I have a hard time imagining a straightforward Taliban takeover. And I have to say, that the Taliban's own political analysts, at least the ones that I've spoken to, don't expect this to be a straight up military victory. Um, they think that they are going to assert themselves on the battlefields and take some territory and then uh, negotiate. Um, and in fact, they have uh, reopened negotiations very quietly in Doha, uh, even as this military offensive has been ongoing.
2: Can, can you tell me a little bit more about these negotiations? I, I know you, you, you have been part of them.
6: Yeah, um, I'm a... I'm freelance consultant, but I, um, I've i been working with a Norwegian foundation called NORAF and also working with a UK-based think tank called ODI. So I've been spending a lot of time in Doha over the last uh, year or so and um, trying to help out on the sidelines of the peace talks. It's difficult. Um, the, the two sides of the negotiations, the The Republic, which includes both the Afghan government and the political opposition in Kabul, um, and the Taliban, they both decided to talk without anyone else in the room, uh, without mediators or facilitators or any of the sort of uh, stuff that you normally see in in peace talks. And so there are a small number of foreign diplomats and people like me sitting around on the sidelines uh, trying to make ourselves useful. They. The talks have been progressing slowly, but peace talks normally do progress slowly. I mean, um, you know, some of the fastest peace negotiations in the world have still taken years. Um, and actually, the, the two sides have started to sort of uh, shape uh, some common understandings of uh, what they want to talk about and how they want to talk about it. Um, obviously, no peace has resulted yet, um, but that's not always the first thing that happens in peace negotiations.
2: And and do you think the U.S. leaving, does it help this peace process or or does it ultimately hurt it?
6: You know, I sometimes say that uh, asking for a full-fledged peace process in Afghanistan is like asking for a birthday cake. Um, and, you know, what Biden did was kind of hit us over the head with a bag of flour Um it's like, OK, yeah, that's an ingredient of a birthday cake. Um, but you know, it's not it's not a peace process. Uh, now, can we can we take what we've been given and, and still mix the ingredients together and, and get a peace process? Yeah, probably. But the abrupt U.S. departure um, certainly complicates uh, diplomatic efforts. Um, it's not, you know, there are lots of other things that Biden could have decided that would have been. It made things even more difficult, so I think from the from a kind of a keeping peace talks alive, point of view is maybe not the end of the world um, it, it 's difficult though I have to say i mean I, I, I think everyone expected the Afghan security forces to hold the line a little better than they did in recent weeks, so while the battlefield is so dynamic um it makes it very difficult for people in Doha to uh reach any sort of understanding because uh when things are so fast moving with the military situation uh translating the military situation into sort of uh, a political understanding um is quite is quite hard
2: we talked Earlier about all your friends and your contacts in Afghanistan, and finally, before we say goodbye today, I wonder what you're hearing from them on this front, you know, what they're reflecting on as they reach this chapter in this 20-year war.
6: Well, you know, this is just a new chapter. Um, the war is not over. The, the United States uh, and its allies continue to give one side of the war 6 to $7 billion a year for its security forces. Um, and you'll, you'll probably continue to see a small number of airstrikes and, you know, it's, it, the, the, the war has entered a new phase, um, but, uh, it is definitely not over. Um, and so what I, you know, I think there's, there's, there's worry that the the world would turn back to be honest. Um, I'm really happy that that you called today because it means you're still interested. And I hope that, um, you know, in the coming years, cause it will take years, um, you continue to, to cover Afghanistan and ask you know whether or not uh, we've made peace yet and, and, and what Canada and, and other Western governments can do to support that process. Um, because yeah the, the real risk is that um, the country continues to burn but just with nobody looking.
2: All right. All right, Graham, thank you for this We're really really appreciative. Thank you. So before we go today, Reuters has learned that Canada is planning to take in hundreds of Afghan interpreters and staff at the Canadian embassy, as well as their families, as soon as possible, as many of them fear retribution from the Taliban after working with Western countries. Human Rights Watch has previously called on all countries involved in Afghanistan to urgently accelerate programs to resettle former Afghan interpreters and other employees, saying they face danger because of their work with foreign forces. That is all for this week. Front Burner is brought to you by CBC News and CBC Podcasts. The show is produced this week by Elaine Chow, Imogen Burchard, Shannon Higgins, Allie James, Jeremy Allingham, and Sunda Snore. Actually, Shannon is leaving us very sadly for a year of maternity leave, and we we're going to miss her very, very much. But we were so, so happy for her and uh, wish her uh, a wonderful wonderful year and many congratulations. Our sound design was by Derek Vanderwijk and Mackenzie Cameron. Our music is by Joseph Chavison of Boombox Sound. The executive producer of Front Burner is Nick McKay Blocos and I'm Jamie Poisson. Thank you so much for listening and we will talk to you next week.
1: That is last Friday morning's front burner from CBC News. You can also get uh, front burner on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Here on ninety three point one CFIS FM. Make sure you're tuned in tonight for this morning's front burner from CBC News, as they'll be talking about the fight for voting rights in the United States. Back to wrap in a moment here on After
0: Nine. Family Caregivers of British Columbia have their latest podcast now available online. Grieving Before a Death with registered clinical counsellor Courtney Doherty talks about grieving the loss of a CARES recipient's cognitive abilities, loss of one's own future dreams, loss of stability, and the loss of one's identity. This podcast and past editions are available through the podcast link at familycaregiversbc.ca.
6: Individuals who experienced sexual misconduct as a member of the Canadian Armed Forces or as an employee of the Department of National Defence and or staff of the non-public funds Canadian Forces may qualify for financial compensation and participate in a restorative engagement program. Claims for financial compensation and the restorative engagement program must be filed by November 24, 2021. File a claim participate in restorative engagement be heard file a claim at CAF-dnd sexual misconduct class action.ca. The Prince George Chamber of Commerce and Commonwealth
4: Financial are excited to host former Surrey Cloverdale MLA Kevin Falcon for a leadership lunch Wednesday, July 21st. Be on hand to hear from the BC Liberal leadership candidate and learn more about his vision for the party's future. Registration and full details are available through the events calendar link at pgchamber.bc.ca. Your Prince George Chamber leadership lunch with BC Liberal leadership candidate Kevin Falcon Wednesday, July 21st at North 54.
1: Check out the Two Rivers Gallery YouTube channel for a new video from Kelsey Stevenson, one of the feature artists in the current exhibition and exercise in listening. Kelsey's short presentation explores how memory shapes our relationships to place, the changes we impose on the landscape around us, and her lived experiences growing up in Alberta. It's just one of many interesting videos available online from Two Rivers Gallery, where creativity flows in the Canada Games Plaza and on YouTube.
0: This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM.
1: You got the mics on? on. We're on. There we go. A couple of minutes left, and uh, just to uh, reiterate the news story from last hour that uh, COVID uh, numbers in Prince George still hanging around the 30 mark. 28 active cases across northern B.C., two new cases. So I think it's a good sign that... Uh, people are uh, perhaps getting a little too relaxed about the situation, uh, you know, if we want that number to drop significantly in a hurry, we need to be a little more aware that the, the, it's still out there. Just right? be diligent. Yeah, because, yeah. Just Because right now, it's not going to go anywhere soon. Yeah, it's it's all well and good to uh, relax a little bit, but still be aware that you should, you know, keep your distance, yeah. uh, socialize with just people that you know, and, and, and keep it... Uh, Keep it conservative for the next little while till we can get that number down to you know under under a dozen. I think would be a nice spot to be. I think safety is due right till our next uh, phase four. Yeah, exactly. Um, Coming up tonight, we have the sports talk show six o'clock post to post. And and are are you going to be in for that? Well, I could. If you're not yeah. gonna, if you're not gonna hurt my lease, I'll, I'll show up, man. <laughs> oh, well then maybe we shouldn't have you in. <laughs> oh no well we'll we'll talk about other things uh, well yeah uh, the yeah, but bad those trade rumors yeah trade rumors yeah the, the the big expansion coming up next week so there's uh, lots going trade on rumor out of toronto really bothers plenty me. going on in uh in the world of uh of hockey and sports in general so uh yeah post to post tonight 96 we'll be back again tomorrow for after nine with the ram and stag podcast followed by the friday panel
0: after Nine is a daily presentation of CFISFM. After Nine is produced by Alan Wishart, Reg Fair, and Nathan Gita. Additional contributors include CBC News and the National Campus and Community Radio Association. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at CFISFM.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email CFISFM at yahoo.ca.
1: You're listening to CFISFM Prince George, a not-for-profit community radio station. Broadcasting with 500 watts of power at 93.1 on the FM dial, CFIS-FM is owned and operated by the Prince George Community
4: Radio Society.